Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. For listening to The Gist, if you want to check out an ad-free version and bonus content, go to subscribe.mikepesca.com. It is the best way to directly support our endeavors. Hi, it's Mike. It's Saturday. Two facts you knew. Here's a fact that you might not have known. It's the Saturday show. Now you probably inferred that, if not outright knew it. So I guess the biggest deal in the world this week was rich men north of Richmond. If you watched or even heard about the Wednesday Republican debate, it led off the debate talking about this song. Well, on the show this week, I listened to the song with fresh ears, having never heard it, having heard about it, but not even having heard about the lyrical content. I did a spiel on that. We will replay that for you, an analysis of this uh, number one song in the country, an apparently political jumping off point, Rich Men, North of Richmond. And then we go back in the vein of music and excellent interviews. In 2017, I talked with Ann Powers, and she talked about two things that people are kind of into, I guess, music and sex, the sexual revolution's impact on music. Enjoy that interview. Chris Gethard, and I'm very excited to tell you about Beautiful Anonymous, a podcast where I talk to random people on the phone. I tweet out a phone number, thousands of people try to call, I talk to one of them, they stay anonymous, I can't hang up, that's all the rules. I never know what's going to happen. We get serious ones. I've talked with meth dealers on their way to prison. I've talked to people who survived mass shootings. Crazy funny ones. I talked to a guy with a goose laugh, somebody who dresses up as a pirate on the weekends. I never know what's going to happen. It's a great show. Subscribe today, Beautiful Anonymous. And now the spiel. The number one song in the country is called Rich Men North of Richmond. And it was made the number one song in the country. Well, I guess because it struck the ears of many a listener. Perhaps many a conservative listener is soulful and tuneful and great with lyrics. But also, thanks to the advocacy of many a conservative media pundit, uh, a lot of podcasters, a lot of uh, radio hosts, getting behind this song by Oliver Anthony. In fact, the New York Times today put the song on the front page and consistently identified Oliver Anthony as Oliver Anthony Music, which is a little like identifying a person as Howard Kupferstein Esquire. So Mr. Esquire then said to me, no, so the guy's name is Oliver Anthony. It turns out he makes music. 
But let's discuss the music he made. So far, all we know is the Rich Men North of Richmond. I have to say, I've never heard it. I haven't heard it. I haven't read about it, except I know that it exists. I subscribe to a few tip sheets, if you will, if this was 1979. There are newsletters in my inbox, and a few of them have been mentioning in this. And then, like I said, it was on the front page of the Times. So let's do an experiment. I am going to listen to this song. I will listen. Maybe you've not heard it before, but I will also give this. I'm going to make a prediction. I predict the song will strike me as a perfectly adequate country song. I predict the song will be tolerable, competent, and maybe knowing the only thing I know about it is conservatives like it, there'll be a sentence or two that, I don't know, sticks Joe Biden in the eye or says something that conservatives might rally around more than they rally around, I think, every other country song. And the last thing I am going to promise you, as I swear I haven't heard it before, we're going to do this together. The last thing I promise you is that I'm going to get the title wrong when I keep talking about it. I keep saying, Richmond of North Richmond, it's rich men north of Richmond. You get it, Washington DC, those men. Okay, let's cue it up. Let's listen to the number one song in the country. I've been selling my soul, oh, working all day. Looking at the guy, Red Beard, probably should not allow the visual so to intervene in my appreciation. I'll be quiet now and listen away. a little more. Good voice. Back home and drown my troubles away. It's a damn shame. Dude, what the world's gotten to. Yep. For people like me. And people like you. People like you. Called I it. could just wake up. Right. And not be true, but it is. Oh, it is living in the new world with an old soul. He's soulful. I like it. These rich men, north the rich men, Lord knows it all. Just wanna Ooh, like how his voice control. broke there a little bit. Speaking of control. I know what you do, and they don't think you know, but I know that you do. Cause your dollar ain't shit, and it's taxed to no end. Oh, your dollar ain't shit. Now they've pulled back on the video and there's some animals there. All this is designed for me to love the song if I'm of the ilk that thinks the dollar ain't shit. And that's a problem. This guy's just so authentic. That was a little on the nose, Jeffrey Epstein reference. And the whole beast, milk and welfare. God, if you're five foot three and you're 300 pounds, wow. taxes ought not to pay for your bags of fudge drowned. That's a pretty explicit political message. <laughs> this is a little surprising as a thumb in the eye. But you know, there are songs by the Calypso artist, The Mighty Sparrow, that are just as pointed and just as vocal about that point of view. Yeah. I could see why Charlie Kirk or Ben Shapiro or Dan Bongino would get behind this song. Pretty good. With an old soul, these rich men north the rich men, Lord knows they all just want to have total control. Want to know what you think, want to know what you do, and they don't think you know, but I know that you do, because your dollar ain't shit. And it's taxed to no hen, calls the rich men, north of rich men.
good picking. That's some good picking, Oliver Anthony. Alright, we end with a trill. I've been selling my soul. Dakota. Working all day. Cut to the dog. Overtime hours for bullshit pay. Creta Core. Okay, that was less anodyne than I thought it would be. I, by the way, you should know I hadn't read the front page article in the New York Times, so I did not know there would be references to obese welfare as, uh, recipients or Epstein Island. That was not Tim McGraw there. But you know what? If there is a contingent of Americans that believe the things that Oliver Anthony was referencing, then it's natural, and I don't think so terrible, that there is going to be art for those Americans, art that expresses those point of views, art that makes a reference to a pedophile island because people, when they talk, talk about pedophile island, and you know it's a Jeffrey Epstein reference. I don't need to agree with the messages of all my artists. Some of my favorite artists have totally contradictory messages, right? They say the best things in life are free. You could tell that to the birds and bees, just give me money, same band. They were named the Beatles, who wrote, I don't care too much for money, money can't buy you love. Or my favorite artist, Springsteen, has a song called The Factory, which is about how bad it is to work in a factory and how it grinds you down. And then he has about a dozen other songs about how bad it is when the factory closes down. And that's not even contradictory. That is actually the experience of a lot of people who don't like the factory, but like it less when there is no factory. Neil Young saying, let's impeach the president. don't think we should have impeached the president. Not that president. It was about George W. Bush. Eh, okay, it was a pretty bad song, and it did not even chart, but I'm glad it exists, just like I wouldn't wish this song or even its ascent to number one out of existence. We are a pluralistic society. I'm glad these attitudes are taking the form of a well-rendered guitar tune and not another angry blog post. In fact, I would listen to that song over and over and over again before I listen to even 30 seconds of conservative pundits like Matt Walsh from About to Play, who helped us drive the song to number one, telling me what the song means. Okay, go up to almost any guy at any bar in any blue-collar part of the country and ask them about welfare, and they will say something very similar to what Anthony says in that song. Almost all of them will. And yet Republicans are afraid to even mention the subject for fear that they'll lose the votes of the very people who are being scammed by this system. I think he's right on the sociology, but wrong on the politics. Republicans say that all the time. But think about how much of the culture is tilted away from people who cotton, obviously cotton to the melody and message of Oliver Anthony. And I'm not even talking about highbrow parts of the culture or middle highbrow like Succession. I love that TV show. But man, did it dominate the culture. And you know how many people watched? 2.9 million viewers. It was everywhere online. It was in every newspaper, every podcast. 
I talked about it. But it's less than 1% of the population in a tizzy about a cultural product that almost no one saw. Or take a song like Fight Night by Migos. You know that song? It's pretty well known. It's definitely well played in hip hop circles. I cannot even approach playing any of that song, and not just for offensive lyrical content. One would hope that the vast majority of America would disagree with the values such as they are expressed in that song. All right, I'm talking about a song that you don't know what it sounds like or what they say. Can we maybe try to give the audience a little bit of a taste, Joel? Lil mama, she keep looking at me. I'ma knock the pussy out like fight night. Hit it with a left, hit it with a right. I'ma knock the pussy out like fight night. Okay, okay, that's enough, that's enough. I do not want to get banned by my internal FCC. But no one that I, well, not no one I know of, objected or caused a big ruckus about that song. People loved singing that song. You know, the 2019 U.S. Women's National Soccer Team won the World Cup, sprayed each other with champagne as they were singing the song in, in the locker room. Good, fine, no problem. Again, pluralistic society. But consider this description of rich men of North Richmond in the New York Times today. The song's populism unmistakably leans right, resulting in an original track perfectly primed for a hyperpolarized moment when conservatives perceive themselves as embattled and politics unrelentingly washes into every other aspect of culture, be it sports, movies, or pop music. Yeah, there are hundreds, if not thousands, of songs, pieces of culture that unmistakably lean leftward that are perfectly primed for a hyperpolarized moment when liberals or members of the Democratic coalition perceive themselves as embattled. I know the authors of the graph I just read agree with that. That's why they're saying that politics unrelentingly washes into every aspect of culture. Another way of saying that point, which I agree with, by the way, another way of saying that is that the massive weight of the culture is expressing progressive opinions. And so this is going to lead to a backlash, a backlash that was sure to happen with the very small aspects of the culture that could be influenced by conservatives. Or maybe it's not so small. Jason Aldean had a much more accusatory, less musical song about trying that in the small town that also benefited from being championed by the right. I do not know if I'll be listening to Rich Man of North Richmond too much for fun. I'll play it for uh, my wife or anyone who hasn't heard it, and I'll see their faces crinkle up, I'm sure. Not just because they don't like the sentiments of the song, but they're not going to be country music fans, the, pl- the ones I play it to. If they were, they'd already know the song. And I will say this, if you want a great country music song that I couldn't stop listening to when I first encountered it, try My Church by Marin Morris. But in the name of pluralism, market forces, a powerful vocal and great elocution on the word bullshit, I get the popularity of the song. I really do. I don't think that it was necessarily just a product of the orchestration of the forces of the right or right-wing podcasting and radio. I would like to think that even without the Q Anon-ish elements, this song would still strike a chord. A wop bop a loo bop a wop-bam-boom. That says it all, but it actually doesn't say it all because the lyrics to Tutti Frutti, 
once contained the phrase good booty since sanitized to some reference to Rudy. But of course, good booty is at the center of Lil Richard's appeal. In fact, all of rock and roll. Good booty is also the very good name of the new book by Ann Powers, Good Booty, Love and Sex, Black and White, Body and Soul in American Music. Hello, Ann. Thanks for coming on. Well, thank you so much for having me. So I love Lil Richard. He's a character, uh, but I found out in your book, he didn't really write, I'm going to say flat out, he did not write Tutti Frutti, correct? Well, Tutti Frutti is a, a song that uh, was recreated, let's say, like so much of American music. Yeah. Um, it was recreated in a different context when Little Richard took it on with a young woman named Dorothy Labastri. They they rewrote the lyrics to a very dirty song that was often sung in nightclubs throughout the South, nightclubs where drag queens and various other characters would hold forth. And uh, the original song was quite explicit, as you said, mm-hmm. and uh, and uh, really expressed what the song's about. But you know what, Mike? I think we know what that song's about, even if he doesn't flat out say it. Well, we know what a lot of Richard, Little Richard's uh, oeuvre was about, and he was such a, he was a character. He was also, I think maybe it's forgotten just how many hits he had and how unbelievably successful and important he was. He was, I think, Little Richard, you know, he was one of those rock and rollers who was drawn to both heaven and and earth and his story he kept going back to the church so that's what interrupted his career trajectory he would renounce rock and roll go be a preacher for a while then come back you know and that has sort of continued throughout his career many artists have that sort of inner conflict although i argue in my book that they they need to resolve that conflict because gospel music and rock and roll are basically the same thing just different uh, objects of desire yeah the old line just changed the word jesus to baby in a Rock song, gospel <laughs> songs becomes a rock song. But what about... That's li- true. So the whole book is about sexuality, but what about Lil, Little Richard's sexuality? He couldn't really be honest. He, he There were winks and nods and a, a little bit of a, a, a black rock and roll Liberace thing going on with him, but he couldn't really Definitely. be honest with his sexuality for years and years. Well, if you read uh, his, his biography, Little Richard, The Quasar of Love, which is really <laughs> an autobiography, I know. The best. Uh, He talks a lot about his predilections, his interests, and he really describes himself as a voyeur. So that's interesting that he came came out and said it right in the book. And he's sort of strangely open and not open at the same time. I think the thing is, the way we describe sexual identity is ever evolving. And certainly in the 1950s to be a flamboyant, let's say polymorphous, open hearted and 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 openly sensual mm, man yeah. uh, uh, that was a really hard thing you know and and it's not only with little richard i i think if you look at every rock star from that time uh there's a way in which they keep getting kind of shoved into a narrower box as they go on chuck chuck berry i mean we could go to elvis we could go to chuck berry i want to go to chuck berry no one no one's more important to american music than chuck berry and very sexual yeah well Chuck Berry is an interesting case artistically. He was somewhat older than most 
of the rock stars of that era, rock and roll stars of that era. He was a polymath musically, very influenced by country music, influenced by R&B performers like Louis Jordan, who performed very witty and and uh, and charming jump blues songs. So he had this sense of narrative in his songs that I think was really unusual. Chuck Berry had it all, and he really transcended genre, but because... I mean, because he was African-American, you know, many people wouldn't call him country, even though he was equally influenced by country as much as he was by anything else. Yes. And he served time in jail for sex. Uh, It was, you know, sex with an underage girl. But of course, he was also prosecuted and persecuted for interracial sex. And, you know, sex plays uh, a big role in his lyrics and a bigger role in his life. If you read his uh, autobiography, it seemed to be he had two things he cared about and one was sex. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and the other, however, was... uh, uplifting the African-American race. You know, let's not forget that Chuck Berry was all about presenting images of African-American culture and society that were extremely proud in their nature. You know, think of brown-eyed handsome man, right? I mean, this guy really was about standing up for African-American dignity and pride. Oh my goodness, Mike, the the intersection of sex and race and power and the music industry, it's just endless can of worms. And I, I, I try to always talk about that in this book, like it, it's endlessly complicated, you know, racism and oppression always factor in. Uh, at the same time, rock and roll created an environment and popular music creates an environment of openness that maybe sometimes lines were crossed that shouldn't have been crossed. Let's talk about Elvis Presley for a second. Elvis the pelvis, uh, obviously Ed Sullivan shooting him from the waist up, the kiss list. How knowingly sexual was he? He would go to the juke joints. He would essentially do imitations. He was great at it of a lot of the sexual black performers he saw. But how much did he know what he was playing with? Elvis is such a strange combination of utter innocence and utter knowingness at the same time. When I go back and watch those early performances now, I really can see the wink, you know? I can see the distance he has. Elvis would have been completely happy, I think, had he gone on to strictly have a gospel music career. He could have sung Southern Gospel. He tried to join kind of the junior league version of a group called the Blackwood Brothers that he loved in Memphis, and he was rejected. Uh, Later, he became good friends with the Blackwood Brothers and the Statesmen, these quartets that he admired endlessly. So, you know, Elvis felt the rock and roll, but he, he also felt the desire to be proper in a strange way. Everyone gives Jim Morrison credit. Uh, he sought it for being a, a sexual avatar. But are you may, I think, I sense you're making the case that Janis Joplin is at least a, very underappreciated, but maybe could be thought of as the female equivalent of uh, Jim Morrison? I mean, she was a pinup. You know, there was a famous poster of her in her hippie finery with her nipple exposed uh, that was on the walls of countless young people. And there is this one uh, legendary encounter that Janice and Jim had in a nightclub in New York. Jimi Hendrix was playing. Janice was supposedly in the audience. Morrison jumps on stage. He's completely drunk, as he was in all of his performances, and um, starts saying basically lewd remarks 
kind of directed toward Jimmy. And somehow they all ended up, I think Janice jumped up on stage and, and wrestled Jim to the ground and they all ended up in kind of a big heap. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> you know, we never, I, who knows? But that, that to me, there you go. That's the 60s right there. You wrote, where'd you write this book? Where, where physically? Where did I write it? Yeah, in, where'd you write it? In my office. Uh, I, well, I was, I started the project when I was living in Alabama. My husband, Eric Weisbart, teaches at University of Alabama, and I lived there for six years. Now I live in Music City, USA, Nashville, Tennessee. It was interesting to be in the South while working on this project, and that might be one reason why I fell into the very deep rabbit hole of New Orleans. The whole first chapter is about New Orleans in the 19th century, kind of setting up the story of music and sexuality as it relates to race, to slavery, to to African-Americans' pride and dignity that they carry on through music through that century. That was my supposition, that this book seems very shot through with if not country music, not country music, but Southernisms and all these uh, figures who were raised, you know, Pentecostal or in rural areas and used music like America used music to kind of break free of those restrictions. And it also seems to me that as much as music was about the liberation, sexual liberation, all other sorts of liberation, without the repression, the music would have sounded a lot different. We need music, not only for our pleasure, but for our very survival. And and we also need music to speak with each other and communicate with each other and connect in ways that otherwise are not allowed. I mean, it, it, again, popular music has always been a force that has created these provisional spaces where people uh, across race lines, ethnic lines, class lines, gender lines could connect, sometimes intimately, and try to understand each other. If let's let's give a what if what if rock and roll weren't the sort of weren't the genre of music that was ascendant? I mean, it seems inevitable, but much of history does. I don't know. What if the Bobby Soxers really had they, their day or what if big band music took off in a way? Do you think the sexual revolution would have happened differently? Oh, my gosh. This is the endless argument that music critics have all the time. Uh, what made rock and roll rock and roll? Is it any different than our blues or R&B or soul or gospel music? I don't know, but I, I know that rock and roll, it's a concept that, that puts forth the importance of, of youth, of rebellion, of freedom, of liberty, and those things are all endemic and essential to the sexual revolution. So I definitely think the music is key. So many things are key, though. I mean, LSD, you know, would there have been a sexual revolution without LSD? I'm not sure, you know, would there have been a sexual revolution without Nixon in a different way, you know, a repressive force to rebel against? I don't know. How do we take these things apart? They're so complicated. Is there sex in all of rock music? I'm thinking I just read Dave Weigel's book about prog rock and there is a genre (laughs) without too much good booty. But is it there and I can't hear it? Poor prog rock. Poor (laughs) prog rock. Well, Mike, masturbation is a form of sex. Uh-huh. So, oh, so, think... that's your... so we have your take on prog rock down. <laughs> no, 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 no. Oh, my gosh. I'm going to get slaughtered for that. Uh, I don't know. Prague Is Prague sexy? I, I think we have to have a, a, a congressional panel on that. I'm not quite sure, but I, I think you could find some something in there. I, I need, some, some kind of fantasies Hatch of the white to, witch or yeah, something. Right. 
Yeah, right. The <laughs> the overlap with the uh, Lord of the Rings lyrics and and yeah. the Zeppelin lyrics, maybe your time is going to come. And yeah, do you think that now that we've reached a time where there really are no restrictions on lyrical content, uh, you can and do say whatever you want? Does that inhibit the sexiness, or is that just something that forty pe- forty year olds tell each other? So I I started this book asking that question, like like. Can we go any farther? But what I found, of course, which is what you always find when you do these kinds of things, is that it's a cycle that, you know, the blues was as dirty as anything today. I do, however, think that the rise of the internet has changed the way people explore their sexuality and that that's definitely affecting music as well. But I think it's made... I don't know. Maybe it's made music a little a little chillier. Maybe we don't we have the cyborgian, you know, pop star of the day. I, to me, Rihanna, she's very sexy and she's like very earthy and I feel her commitment to sexuality. Let's say that. But there are other pop stars today that I just I don't know, they feel a little puritan to me. Ann Powers is the author. The name of the book is Good Booty, Love and Sex, Black and White, Body and Soul. Thank you, Anne. It was a blast. I enjoyed it quite a bit. And that's it for the show. Corey Wara produces The Gist. Joel Patterson's the senior producer. We'll talk to you on Monday.